welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on December 18th, Lord's Day Service. way of letting you know the situation before we begin reading. In this chapter, Isaiah speaks to the king, or he's speaking of the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib, who was laying siege to Judah and was soon to attack. You can read the actual events that happened in Isaiah 36 and 37. But before those good things happen, first, the people are in the midst of a trial. In the first 12 verses, Isaiah warns Assyria of the coming attack, of the coming judgment of God on them. And then in verse 13, the prophet turns the fear of judgment upon those of Jerusalem. So let us begin in verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. Hear, you you who are afar off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners of Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Let's pray. Our Father, it is you and you alone who teaches who guides and who instructs in perfect wisdom. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Verse 14 in this chapter says that the sinners, the hypocrites of Zion are filled with fear. And he asked two questions. Really, it's one question, but it's asked twice for emphasis. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Fire is a mysterious, mesmerizing force claimed by the Greek, early Greek philosopher Heraclitus, to be the universal element that unites all things. Incidentally, Heraclitus' word for that fire, logos. From the first command, let there be light, fire has existed in the terrestrial world. It gives warmth and light while refining 
or even consuming whatever it touches. All fires, that is, except one. Abraham first glimpsed that fire in his vision of a torch that passed down the middle of a divided animal when Yahweh made a covenant with him. That is incidentally the first time we see explicitly in Scripture a fire of any sort that comes down from God. The fire came in expanded form on Sodom and Gomorrah when they refused to abandon their sexual deviance and defiantly pursued their carnal lusts. Moses met that fire on the backside of the desert when Yahweh spoke to him in a burning bush that was lit but was not consumed. That same fire again expanded and rained upon Egypt in the seventh plague. The fire led Israel out of bondage. He protected them from the Egyptian armies and then surrounded his holy mountain. When Moses returned from that mountain, his face was itself so bright with the radiant glory of God that he had to veil himself. No man can look upon God and live. For our God is a consuming fire, just the back of God that passed before Moses when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock was enough that if he had not hidden his face from the people, they would have been blinded. This fire consumes sacrifices and slays men, yet preserves his people. We read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they met the angel of God, not outside, but inside the fire. That same fire slew the men who carried them, but did not harm them. Fire descended upon the tabernacle when it was inaugurated, and later upon the temple. The burning candles commanded by God in the tabernacle and temple symbolized His presence. For the fire to go out is a symbol that the presence of God is gone, as when the Israelites lost a battle to the Philistines at the same time that Eli's daughter-in-law was having a son and he was named Ichabod because God's presence was gone. The ark was the fire in the ark was snuffed out and carried away to Philistia. That symbol remains though even in the book of Revelation when the churches are told that if they do not turn then they will God will remove their lampstand. The fire will be taken. Let us not think that that's merely an old covenant symbol. It continues in the new covenant. Isaiah here prophesies that Yahweh's exaltation, which we see in verse 10, means destruction for Assyria. As he says in verse 10, Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will be exalted. I will lift myself up. 
We think the glory of God, wonderful, but what does that glory bring with it? Verse 11, you shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble, you shall breathe as fire shall devour you, and the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. But the warning extends past the pagans. Nobody would be disappointed if all the wickedness of the world out there was dealt with. I mean, seriously, unless you have family or friends, if you heard that a new volcano erupted and I just fill in the blank, whatever place you think is the worst place on earth, the most despicable, nasty place, if a, if a volcano erupted, the earth opened up and a whole lot of wickedness was swallowed up, how many of you are going to say, or are going to really weep over that? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying... We all don't mind the judgment of God out there. But it doesn't stop out there. As we heard this morning, it's not just about the needs and the problems of our neighbor who are dealt with. When the fire comes, it comes. And judgment, we're told by the, the Apostle Peter, begins in the house of God. As he says, Isaiah says in verse 14, the sinners of Zion are afraid. Here we must acknowledge something, an unpopular truth taught by our fathers for thousands of years. This, this burning that was prophesied for Assyria was temporal. It was a temporary judgment coming upon a people in time and space. But this passage points to a more imposing, all-encompassing fact. And that is, everlasting fire is real. Jesus himself teaches this in Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46. This is his last parable before the crucifixion. Remember all the parables Jesus taught. His last one was not about... There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. It's not something that makes everybody feel really good about life. Just before he goes, his last parable is of the sheep and the goats. He says in those two verses, Then shall he say unto those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. Jesus borrows from Isaiah's description in Isaiah 33 in the words of this parable. All of those, he's saying all who have stood against God will be received into everlasting fire. These are hard words. You may say to yourself, I came here expecting a Christmas sermon. When, you, when we think about the lives of people, when we look at those, especially those we love, it's hard to imagine eternal punishment. This is one of the often quoted stumbling blocks for people who don't want Christianity to be true. 
Everybody likes the love of God, they think. But love of God also entails hatred of evil. If love doesn't have boundaries somewhere, it's not love. We don't get to redefine what God says just because it makes us feel better. But though many we know may reject the light, they may reject the fire, they cannot extinguish it. The light so many refuse throughout their lives shines on and can draw someone even at the point of death. As Peter again says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. On the day of resurrection, when God divides the righteous from the unrighteous, no one will be able to say, if I just had one more chance, then I would have turned. If He had given me one more opportunity. Now, yeah, they may say that, but it's not true. One of the attributes of God is that He is long-suffering. He has always been long-suffering. He'll never cease being long-suffering. But we, again, cannot tell Him how to create. The question was asked to Job when Job was suffering in Job chapter 38, were you there when I created the world, when I fashioned the foundations? And of course the answer was no. Just as we cannot instruct the triune God in how He made all things, we cannot instruct Him on how He will bring all things to their final purpose. In that same passage in 2 Peter 3, when Peter talks about God's long-suffering, he goes on. Peter goes on to talk about that one day he says the fire of God will fill the earth, dissolving what is dead and dying and renewing everything else. Let me read that. Second Peter 3, verse 10, right after the verse I mentioned earlier, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all things, these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, when the fire comes in the end, 
It's not that our Heavenly Father simply pours lighter fluid on this world, throws in a match and says, man, I'm glad that's over with. I hated that place. It's a big trash heap. That's not it at all. His promise to restore all things is fulfilled through His coming. Because Jesus came as a man... He brought the fire of God Himself, but He did not extend it across the entire cosmos yet. He sent His fire then later at Pentecost. He began as the lamp. He is the same lamp who passed through those split animals with Abraham. He is the same lamp who came to His people. He is the same one, the angel of the Lord, who led them out of darkness into light, who led His people through all kinds of things, who preserved them. He came and consumed the sacrifice with Elijah on Mount Carmel, and He continues to come. He came in the fire of Pentecost, and now He has lit this world through the saints. What began as a lamp from heaven will one day engulf the world. The question is, do you receive the fire now or do you defiantly spit at and curse the fire until you are consumed? That raises the question then. What keeps us all from being consumed? Isaiah answers that question in verse 15, which we did not read. But we can think, wow, this is just, this is really sad. But Isaiah says, after he asked the question, who can dwell in this fire, this judgment? Verse 15, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of the oppressor, gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, stops his ears from hearing bloodshed, and shuts his eyes to seeing evil. The one who honors God is the one who is protected and preserved. It doesn't mean the fire will not come, but the one who stands, the one who is faithful, the child of God who displays the light, who serves as his lamp and testifies to God's righteous standards will be preserved. He sends his servants to proclaim the coming light as he sent John the Baptist. In the time of Christ, the brightness of his glory the brightness of God's glory and expressed image of His person was on earth. And through us now, even through our suffering, the glory resting upon us better manifests the glory of our Father. This is how the brilliant math mathematician Blaise Pascal could utter the words from a vision he had on a late, cold November night. He said this, Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. There's more to his vision. And like many visions, there's a lot unstated. 
but we serve the God whose fire not only fills our minds and hearts, but overcomes our minds and hearts with His everlasting radiance. The fire of judgment came upon Jerusalem and consumed the Assyrians. God's people, though they suffered, again saw their king. As he prophesies in verse 17, they saw the king, Hezekiah, in royal attire again before the people. But for us, the good news of everlasting fire is glimpsed also in verse 17 when he says this, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. We need God's everlasting fire to come. For without it, there is no hope of final restoration. But then, when all things are renewed, we will need no veil to protect us. And the king and his land that we have so earnestly desired and longed for will no longer be something far off. But we will see our king in his unveiled beauty. And we will see the home, not far off anymore, but we will be in the eternal home for which we have longed, desired. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You and we praise You for sending Your everlasting fire. And we ask that You would indeed bring forth all things, manifest Your glory among us, and use us in Your world as Your servants. In Christ's name, Amen. Let's continue our worship by receiving our tithes and offerings. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gifts You've given. As we give back a portion of these gifts now, we do so with glad hearts, and we ask that You would use them to the glory of Your kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.